Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Good morning. Our reading today is from Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. You will find it in the Pew Bible on page 634. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Good morning. Well, it's good to see you guys here today. Have you guys noticed that this has been a tense week? Anybody else notice that? Anybody else? Feel, no, okay. So you guys haven't felt it. You know, there, there's some pretty big things that are happening uh, in our country and in our city today. Very, very significant. And, uh, and I have to tell you, I have felt the anxiety just in myself. When I get really anxious, uh, my forehead and my ears just get really hot. And they've just been burning up this whole week. I've had tons and tons of conversations, a lot of discomfort. I've actually slept pretty well, surprisingly enough, although not, uh, not as long as I would like. Uh, but I have to tell you, I have been really uncomfortable this week. And uh, my guess is, is that there are probably many of you who have been too. And all of us, when we get uncomfortable or when we are presented with uncomfortable things, we have a natural tendency to get anxious and we do whatever we can to make it go away. Anyone else try to make it go away? Eating or sleeping or, you know, whatever you can just to make it go away. And there are a couple of ways that we can do this. One of them is to play possum, right, is just to forget about it and just try to go to your happy place and not worry about it anymore, right? Uh, turn off the news, turn off the TV, because I just don't want to hear it. 
And, uh, and that makes us feel better. It gets rid of the comfort, or gets rid of the discomfort. But of course, the problem is, is then we don't really know what's going on, and we don't really deal with what's going on. Another response that we could do is we can become kind of a predator. Either we lash out in anger in our relationships, or even if we don't lash out at other people, we just kind of stew inside and we steam, you know, and, and we start rage reading on the internet or, you know, things like that. And, uh, and so that actually kind of, it kind of weirdly gives us a, a sort of comfort to, to even do things like that. Of course, my natural tendency is to be the possum, to avoid discomfort. And I'm sure that many of you today are wishing that I would avoid it too, right? Uh, but I'm sure, uh, but the truth is, is that, like I said, this, is a, this has been a very significant week in our city and in our country. I don't know if you realize just how significant this week has been. All right? And if we don't talk about it now, we never will. And so, I want you to know that this is something that matters not just to our society, but it also matters to the church. And of course, I'm talking about the trial of Derek Chauvin uh, for the murder of George Floyd. Now, I would love to not talk about race. I would love to not talk about justice because when I do, I get it from all sides. You know, there, it's, not, then it's not just two sides. There are actually lots of sides to it. And, uh, and, it's, and it's really difficult. You have to understand that uh, I don't have the option of not talking about it, uh, but I'm still in process learning and growing and all of that, and, and probably what I say today will be different than what I say in a year, right? But you probably get this too. Unless you only talk to people who agree with you, then you probably are also having some uncomfortable conversations. I've talked with some friends who have had conversations with their parents, and they haven't gone very well. And it's been very difficult, and relationships have been strained. And, uh, and, and because it's, it's hard. It really is. I've had probably a dozen conversations this week alone about Dante Wright and George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and all of that. And I feel like most of them have been pretty fruitful. We've come into them with humble hearts and we've learned and we've grown and, uh, and we've really tried to understand. They've been hard, but I want to say they're important. They're important conversations to have. I once had a mentor say to me, what I found is that the greatest catalyst for growth in my life were things that I never would have voted for. You know, we often think that it's just in worship service or in Bible study, as great as those things are, that we grow. But no, it's actually in these difficult times, these things that we don't want to deal with, that we can grow the most. See, we don't get to choose what grows us the most. But you also have to know that discomfort is not something that automatically grows us. We have to respond to it in the right way. For some of us, if we become a possum or if we become a predator, just to try to get back to comfort, what we're doing is, is we're actually choosing entrenchment or stagnation rather than growth. And in my conversations that I've had with many of you this week, I can tell that, that many of you are really uncomfortable because you don't know what to think, you don't know how to respond. You don't know what to say. You, know, you don't know what words or phrases or whatever are, are acceptable, what thoughts are acceptable. You're talking to friends and family members, and you're having uncomfortable conversations with them. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about what do we do with this discomfort, especially around the subject of race and justice, because we as Christians need to learn to have better conversations about this. Because unless we do, then it'll never go beyond that. 
beyond conversation. All right, so there's a ton that I could say. I'm really only going to have two very simple points. I'll spend most of my time on the second one, but, but here's the first one. What do we need to do when we feel uncomfortable, especially in this arena when we're talking about race and justice, okay? The first thing that we need to do is we need to deal with it, all right? Uh, it, you know, when I was growing up, we used to always say, just suck it up. Right? And uh, I know that's not advice that we issue very much in the church, but you know what? You're going to be comfortable, uncomfortable, and that's okay. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you have to be comfortable, right? Um, and, I, and you need to lean into the conversation, all right? Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't say, woe is me. There are a lot of people who have it way better off than you do. And so... Uh, Truth of the matter is, as many of us, those of us who are in the congregation today, uh, have the luxury of being able to stick our fingers in our ears and not have the conversation, to turn the TV off and never talk about it again uh, and not have it really bother us, okay? But as I talk to my black friends, they don't have that luxury. They can't just turn it off, you know, because it's in their face day after day after day. And so we have to... Out of, in the spirit of Christian love, we have to not walk away from the conversation, all right? And I know that churches are dividing on issues of race. There are churches who agree on almost every bit of theology otherwise, but are uh, of theology and practice so much that we hold in common and yet are dividing on issues of race, even within local churches, in our church itself, just, just our local church, just the number of people that we have in here, we have people on the spectrum that go all the way from this extreme to that extreme and everything in the middle. We've, we've got it all, all right? And, uh, <clears throat> and when we see this, if we play possum or if we just try to make it go away or we, if we just go back to comfort, then we're never going to figure this thing out. We're never going to find a way forward. Right? Here's what Ephesians chapter 4 says about being in the church. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul urges unity in the church. And he says this. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's saying this is the posture that we need to have toward each other in the church. And, but he's not encouraging a, a sort of false unity where we ignore differences and we ignore difficulties. Okay, but bearing with one another means being committed to the relationship even in difficult times. It's the commitment to work through our differences in a spirit of unity. And so we need to learn in humility to stay present And the church, not just our church, but the church in general, needs to do this well, okay? Because he he goes on a little bit later to say, you know, we have have something that holds us together. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same scripture to guide us. And yet we live in a society that is becoming more and more polarized and more and more entrenched in their views, And if we can't get it right, those of us who share this foundation, then how do we expect the world to get it right? And that should matter to us. In fact, I know many of you are concerned about various things, maybe secular ideologies that address racial justice, and no doubt there are some ungodly elements out there. 
some things that are not in line with, with Christianity. But by and large, the reason that we need ideologies like that is because we've avoided the issue for so long. Or we've mistrusted our black brothers and sisters when they've said, hey, we have a problem here. We don't trust them and we don't listen. Okay, and so let's stick with the conversation. And we may not all end up agreeing on everything, but in the spirit of Christian love, let's stick with the conversation. All right, so that's the first thing. Okay, deal with it. All right, don't go right to comfort. You're going to be okay, you're going to be fine. All right, here's the second thing we have to remember who we are and what God requires of us. All right, now here's the thing. We have the resources to do this, okay? We don't have to go to any other ideologies for that because we already have the instructions, right? If, if Carrie were up here right now, standing here, and I asked this question, where do we go to learn what God requires of us, what would we say? The Bible, the Bible. right, yeah. That's, Carrie, were you the first one to answer there? No, Who was it? There was someone over here, all right. You guys, you guys got it, all right? All right, so that's, that's where we go. We go to the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't answer every question about policy and how we should think about this or that. It doesn't, doesn't even diagnose what exactly uh, is wrong with society. But it does, give us a lot of, it does give us a lot of hope and a lot of direction for what just look, justice looks like, what a just society looks like. And so we're going to talk about that today. Who are we and what does God require of us? Now, I don't know if you know this, but the word justice is used over 400 times in the Old Testament, and it's used over 50 times in the New Testament, and there are many other passages that talk about justice, but maybe don't even use that word. And, and, and so what I want you to see is, is that this is actually a very common theme. It's a very important theme in Scripture. Now, earlier, to, earlier uh, right before this, Helen read the passage Micah 6.8. And uh, one of the key ver- this is one of the key verses in the Old Testament that talks about justice. It's used as, as sort of one of those keystone passages that we go to, um, and then we can look at some other passages to, to sort of flesh it out. But, uh, but here's what it says. Let me remind you. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All right, now, the context of this passage comes, of course, because Micah is a prophet that Israel is disobeying. They've, they've uh, broken the covenant. And, uh, and so this is a prophecy against Israel. Uh, now, their actual crimes that they were committing against the covenant, that it, it doesn't really flesh them out a lot in the book of Micah. There are some things there. <clears throat> but if you go through all of the prophets, there are generally just two categories of sin that are considered to be covenant breakers that the prophets talk about. The first one is idol worship. And then oftentimes with idol worship, it, it, uh, there's sin that goes along with it, oftentimes sexual sin, and so you'll see a lot of that kind of thing. But the second one is the failure to do justice. The failure to do justice is a sign of, of a broken covenant. Okay, And so God says, because of these things, he's going to remove his protection and allow Assyria to come in and take them captive. Now, of course, they weren't super excited about this, right? Who likes to be taken captive? And, uh, and also, uh, Assyria had a reputation of being especially ruthless to their victims. And so, of course, the people of Israel then respond to Micah, and they, and they say, well, how do we make this better? Okay, how do we go back to comfort? Okay, how do we do that? 
And, and they do it by, and basically what they're doing is they're saying, we want to go back to our comfortable place. Here's what they say, starting in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Okay? To say they were feeling discomfort, you might have noticed that that's a bit of an understatement, right? Uh, because, and the, what they were trying to do to make it go away was to lean on the things that they were comfortable with, okay? Which was for them to be more religious, right? Notice what they're doing. God, will you change your mind if we start making sacrifices again? Would you change your mind if we had more worship services and we lifted our hands higher and sang louder? If we donated, how about if we donate 1,000 rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Then, then we'll be, we'll be okay, Oh, actually, you know what? Let's do this. We'll start to sacrifice our children. We'll do child sacrifice. Just make it go away, God. Right? They're pretty desperate, aren't they? And then comes Micah's response. Micah 6.8. Here's my paraphrase. Listen, people. You know what? You already know what to do because he's already told you. Now let me remind you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. With your God. In other words, how do people like you how, do you, how do people of the covenant act? Well, you act justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with God. All right, let's talk about those three things. Start with act justly. Let me give you a little bit of context for what biblical justice is by going to some secular ideas of justice. There's a, a guy named Michael Sandel that outlines three basic ways that societies think about justice. The first one he calls the maximizing welfare view. And in this one, justice means doing the great amount, greatest amount of good and the least amount of harm for the greatest number of people. In other words, let's try to create a society that makes as many people possible happy. And uh, this would be, I think, probably a largely libertarian view of justice. And of course, one of the problems with this is, is the question of who gets to define what flourishing is, what, what is good, right? And that's, a, that's kind of a common theme even with these, uh, with these secular views of justice. The second view of justice is what he calls respecting freedom. This is one that focuses on individual lib liberty. Um, it focuses on being the kind of society that cre creates the greatest amount of respect for people to be able to live the way they want to live. Okay? This would be a more conservative approach. It would be free markets, it would be small government, uh, maybe uh, actually a classical liberal approach to, uh, to justice. If you just remove restrictions, uh, have as small of a government as possible, then individuals would do the right thing. Now, of course, you can see the problem with that right away is, is that there's a lot of times that individuals don't do the right thing. And in fact, they don't do the right thing individually, and also sometimes they create systems that tend to harm other people. Okay, third approach, third approach to justice is what, what he calls promoting virtue, uh, which he says uh, that, that justice is what shapes a society so that people act how they ought to act in accordance with moral virtue. Okay, so here you create laws and structures to promote or require people to act virtuously. 
Okay? Now, societies in the past have done this. Oftentimes, when Christianity and the government uh, come together, this kind of thing happens. You have laws that, that, uh, that promote a certain kind of morality. And, of course, in the past, what this has done is it's created a, some really harsh restrictions on people uh, and has placed some very, very uh, difficult uh, restrictions on people. Uh, so you can see this in medieval times. In the U.S., for a lot of it, certainly, you know, this is what the moral majority in the 80s was advocating for. Let's make people act morally. All right? Again, you know, one of the, one of the problems with this is, is who gets to decide what moral is. You have to have some sort of a foundation for what that looks like. All right? Uh, incidentally, or not incidentally, this is where a lot of the modern social justice movement lands today. Okay? Um, even if the values aren't enforced by law, there's great societal pressure for uh, people or institutions to conform to a particular uh, vision of social justice. Okay? And, uh, and so this is what we see, people wanting to other people to act morally. And that's a particular vision of justice in a society. Right? And so then the question that we have to answer is, is, well, which one of these is biblical? And I think you probably already know the answer. None of them. Right? At least not completely. Now, there are things in each of them that I think the Bible would agree with. There are things in each of them that the Bible would disagree with. But we don't get our view of justice from secular ideologies. We start with the Bible. Now, they can be helpful for us in diagnosing things and helping us to think about things. But ultimately, we want our foundation to be Scripture. And what we find is, is that the Bible doesn't fit neatly into any of these categories. Okay? And so... The question is, what does biblical justice look like? Now, I don't have a definition for you, but I'm going to walk through a few things just so you can start to get a little bit of a, of a picture here. Okay? Now, the word for justice in Micah, it's a word that's used over 400 times in the Old Testament, is the word mishpat. But I actually don't think that we can fully get a picture of what justice is if we only use that word. Uh, so I think we need to also add a word that oftentimes goes side by side and they're used together is the word tzedakah. And uh, we translate that one as righteousness usually. And we tend to think about righteousness as, a, as an internal uh, personal morality. And, and certainly there's some element of that. But actually tzedakah is more of a relational thing. That my relationships are right. And that of course requires me to act virtuously and to act morally. But it also means that I'm in harmony with my neighbors as well. And so... Throughout the Old Testament, together, mishpat and tzedakah lead to peace and flourishing. Okay? It's where individuals have what they need, they can live good lives in relationship with God and in their community. Okay? It's the picture that we see earlier on in the book of Micah, in Micah 4.4. 4. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Okay? Justice and righteousness, scripturally speaking, are what bring about this kind of society. But those two things, they're not the same. They do them in, in different ways. Now, mishpat is what we call retributive justice, okay? which means declaring a behavior wrong and rectifying it. All right? uh, and we can do this in interpersonal relationships, of course, when we apologize to someone, when we make restitution. Uh, we can do this voluntarily, individually. But also in our society, we tend to do this in the court system. So, for instance, the Derek Chauvin trial was about retributive justice. Okay? Um, 
Retributive justice recognizes the humanity of the person who was wronged and tries to make it right. Okay? Now, of course, in the case of murder, you can't get that life back. And so you have to find some way to, to uh, signify that, yes, we value you, you were wronged. And even though we can't fully make that back, because otherwise, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, well, that's, you know, might not end up good either, um, at least according to Jesus, right? But at least what it does is it recognizes that there was a wrong done. And, uh, and it gives dignity to the person who was wronged, right? But it's not just about dealing with wrongs that have already been done. It's also about creating just laws and organizations and institutions for the ordering of society, okay? And, and we have to create these. We, we do. We need these kinds of things. And the reason is, is because we are sinful individuals, and sinful individuals have a tendency to create sinful systems that harm other people and disadvantage some groups over others, and that's been our history in the United States. Okay? We'll give you a couple of examples. Think about abortion. Right? That's not just individual actions. Okay? But, but people go to the courts to try to fight against it because they see it as a systemic thing. It's not just individual people making individual actions. Or things like housing policies that were intentionally made throughout our history to disadvantage black people to tell people where they could live and where they couldn't live and who you could sell a house to and who you couldn't. These are systems that were put in place um, and they were unjust systems. And so we have to be very careful and we actually we have to be very diligent about creating systems and, and continuing to evaluate our systems that we create to see uh, whether they are actually fair and equitable for people. Okay? Uh, and, and we start to see some of these things in, in Scripture as well. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, one of them that I just actually noticed this week is from Isaiah 5.8. It says this, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Right? You know what? This, this is about Israel's housing policies. Right? It's in the Bible right here. Okay? We see, what you, what you find is, is that the Bible doesn't just view us as a collection of individuals who are making individual decisions, but we are connected, and the decisions that we make impact our society, okay? Even people who are far away, we can make decisions that impact them as well. We're, we're more like, I saw it um, once um, illustrated, that we are more like, a, 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 um, less like a, a bag of marbles and more like a cluster of grapes, okay? That we are connected, Right? And this is why we need Mishpat, to order our society. Okay, here are some other scriptures. First uh, Kings 10.9. Now this is when Solomon is becoming king, and they're, they're pr- praying this blessing over him. And it says this, as praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king. And this is why he says he's made you king. This is the job of the king, to maintain Mishpat and Zedekah. Righteousness and justice, okay? So this is something that can be done by the government, right? Uh, here's another interesting one. Exodus 23, 2. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. All right? now this is kind of a relevant one for this, uh, for this last week. In fact, I saw someone on Facebook this week that, uh, that, said, uh, that said this is exactly what happened in the Derek Chauvin trial. That, uh, that he was declared guilty because the crowd got excited and upset, and so the jury responded to that. And I don't know, maybe some of you have heard that as well. Anybody else heard that? That, it, that it's mob rule, that it's mob justice? Well, actually, it just so happens that the, 
that the evidence in the case was so overwhelming that there didn't need to be a crowd to do that. In fact, but, but you've seen the crowd all for this, the, this last year or so. But the reason that they, they were doing that is because they recognize that we have a history in this country of trials that have been slanted against black people and against poor people. And so the reason that they were protesting was to make sure that we get this kind of justice. Okay? Now, are, are there people in the crowd who would be in favor of mob rule or whatever? Probably. Okay? But that's not really what was happening there. Okay? It was justice. All right? there, there are more things about, about the court systems in here. Uh, uh, Je- uh, Exodus 23.6. Do, ju- peop- Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Right? And what this recognizes is, is that oftentimes people with money get better outcomes in court than people who don't have it. They can afford better lawyers. They can grandstand. They can hold the court system up for years and years and years because they can afford to do that. And poor people can't. Right? Um, Brian Stevenson has famously said, in this country, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Finally, Leviticus 19.15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Okay? And so what it's saying there is, is yes, you should not favor the, the rich in court, but you also shouldn't favor the poor. You should... Try to seek the truth and do what is good and right and true impartially, no matter who is there. Okay? But the reason that we oftentimes see protests is because people recognize that this doesn't always happen. Okay? Equality under the law. Okay? These are social systems. They're things that God cares about, and so we should care about them as well. Okay? That, that's mishpat. All right. Tzedakah. Tzedakah is what we often refer to as restorative justice. Okay? Tzedakah is what creates a level playing field for people. Okay? It deals with how we order our society to care for people. And so if you're thinking about the government, you think about things, programs like welfare or Medicare, Medicaid. They would fit nicely into that. But, but Tzedakah doesn't necessarily have to come from the government. Uh, I think it can. Uh, and, uh, and I think the government can have resources to be able to do that, but it doesn't necessarily have to do that. Of course, as individuals, we can do tzedakah as well. If we choose to adopt or uh, give to charity or if we foster kids or something like that, that's doing tzedakah because it takes someone who's in a vulnerable position and gives them the ability to be able to thrive. And so we can do that individually or we can do it through organizations. Uh, we can do it through organizations like food shelves or hospitals. Hospitals actually were a, were a Christian invention, okay? Churches started hospitals. Now, most of them are run by other organizations or uh, the state or whatever now, but, but it was originally a, a Christian idea, okay? Same with schools or preschools. Uh, organizations like Together for Good that we work with, even organizations that have mentoring groups like the Man Up Club we've talked about a little bit or Hope United CDC that, that our friend Reverend Coleman uh, runs that does mentoring for, for young black men. Um, they would fit into this category. Arrive Ministry does this for immigrants. Uh, the Salvation Army is a church that was founded upon justice, and it has stayed true to that mission for its whole time. Puts us to shame, to be honest. All right? Okay, these are all organizations that do tzedakah. All right, here's some biblical examples. Okay, here's a, here's a personal example right here, okay? First of all, gleaning laws. Leviticus 19, 9, and 10 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, 
Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over, uh, go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Okay? And basically what this is saying is, is it's, it's saying don't be greedy, okay? but leave opportunity for people who don't have anything, who aren't tied to the land, people who are poor or immigrants, to come by and to be able to have the food that they need. Okay, if you try to collect everything that you can all the time, then you're not creating space for, for people who are vulnerable, and you're not doing justice, right? So that's, a, that's kind of a personal example. Um, Isaiah 117, where God is speaking to Israel as a whole, uh, where he says, learn to do right. And what does that mean? Right is the word uh, tzedakah. Seek justice. That's mishpat. Okay, and here's, here's how he says to do it. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Okay, so this one has to do with advocacy for people who, who are, are powerless in our society. Okay, and we see verses in the New Testament that carry this same idea, James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And you see other examples in the New Testament as well. In the ministry of Jesus, Jesus did all kinds of tzedakah, for people, all right? Now, this is where it might start to get a little uncomfortable for you guys, all right? Mishpat and Zedekah actually have a particular focus in Scripture. And the thing that makes us uncomfortable is we like to believe that God treats everyone the same, that God treats everyone equally. But the Bible is pretty clear that God has his ear turned toward the poor and the vulnerable. Psalm ten seventeen. You, Lord, hear the desires of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. This isn't coming from some ideology. This is is the Bible, right? Are you guys surprised to see this stuff? Maybe not. I don't know. And it's something that those of us who have had it easy in this society have tend to miss and have tended to downplay. Those of us who have always had enough to eat, those of us who don't have to worry about profiling, those of us who don't have to worry about many things in life. Okay? We miss this because we tend to go back to comfort. But it's something that persecuted Christians since the beginning of time have seen. They've always seen this. Something that the black church in America has seen for hundreds of years. They've always seen this. Okay? And yet we miss it. And they cling to it for hope. Here's how Tim Mackey, we've watched these uh, Bible Project videos before, and uh, Tim Mackey, who's the kind of the brains behind that thing, brilliant guy, this is, this is how he summarizes it. He says, If I honor the Bible as the source of divine wisdom... I have to reckon with the extraordinary emphasis on the poor living conditions of people in poverty or people who are vulnerable and the command that their problems need to become the problems of people with influence and voice. And that's the definition of a just community. That just is the case. Pretty strong words. The theologian Nicholas Wolterstorff says says something similar. He says, lower classes are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but are disproportionately actual victims of injustice. 
In human history, injustice is not equally distributed. Okay? More discomfort, isn't it? And here's probably the hardest part, is that we actually live in a society that has a history of taking advantage of vulnerable people. Right? Now, we're not the only ones, but we have to reckon with that fact whether it's with the Native Americans decimating the Native Americans, putting them on reservations, 250 years of slavery along with Jim Crow and every other means that we could to take back rights from black people, Japanese internment camps, growing disparity between the rich and the poor. This is the reality of our sinful condition. Okay? And it's not just an individual thing something in our society. This is part of our history. Yes, it's not unique to us, right? Every society has had its vulnerable people groups and people who were more than willing to prey on them or ignore them, okay? But we have to reckon with our history. And too often, Christians have used the Bible to justify doing this very thing. But if we read the whole Bible, then we have to believe that God notices and that he cares. Now, this is where I have to admit that I'm starting to feel some discomfort myself. All right? So I'm going to have to do this in front of you guys. We've kind of done this in fits and starts. Right? We've had times when we've gone out and we've served. We've served in schools and served the poor and taken up collections. We've worked with organizations. Truth of the matter is we have not been persistent enough. Right? For how significant of an issue this is in Scripture... I think in many ways, and I have to take ownership for this, is I, I've allowed us to go back to, well, should we just raise our hands higher? Should we just do more Bible studies? When God is saying, no, oh, he's already shown you what's good, what the Lord requires of you. Jesus in uh, Matthew 23, 23 is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, here's, here's the problem with you guys, <laughs> or one of the problems. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the, further, or the, the, uh, the former. Okay, now notice, Jesus is actually referring to Micah 6, right? You've ignored the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Right? So, we're to act justly, and I think you kind of get a picture of what that means, right, for us. He also says to love mercy. Mercy is the word has said, okay? And it's the word for covenantal love. If you wanted to find an equivalent in the New Testament, it would probably be something like agape, love. It means to look with favor and to act on behalf of the vulnerable, okay? And over and over in scripture, God says, well, you should give hesed to other people because I gave hesed to you. So it's only that God's hesed is flowing through us to other people. And this is what it means to show mercy. Now, the Bible mentions four types of vulnerable people. It mentions more than that, but these are the, the common ones that, that continue to go on and on and on, all right? Uh, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. Right? Now, in that society, what made people vulnerable was that they didn't have one or either of two things, family or land. Right? Those were the things, because those were the family and land were the social safety net 
uh, of that society. And in many ways, that's the social safety net of ours too, right? Owning, house, owning houses and having a, a family together, all right? So it's not that much different, although probably it was even, even greater. Um, and those are the things that the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor are all missing, they might be able to survive as long as things are going well, but when a disaster comes, when there's a famine, when there's something that is unexpected comes, that's when they are particularly vulnerable because they have no margin to be able to absorb that. No savings account, anything like that. The core of hesed, the core of mercy, as Micah talks about it, is the willingness to make other people's problems my own. They might not actually be my family, but because God has brought me into his family, then I treat them as my family. That's what Hesed is about. God invited us in when we were vulnerable, and we didn't have family. And so now we are to do the same for others. Now again, this doesn't address any particular policies, right? We need good policies. We need good laws, just laws. We need organizations. We need institutions to provide a safety net, okay? But as believers, we are called to be people who see the problems of others and make them our own. Now, hesed is, is motivated by mercy and compassion, or em- empathy and compassion. Okay, Romans twelve fifteen says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And that means get in touch with the feelings of other people. Of course, the big news this week was the trial of Derek Chauvin. Uh, on Tuesday, they announced the verdict. And they announced that they were that they had a verdict at about two o'clock, and that they were going to make the deci- or they were going to uh, read the decision between three thirty and four. And and I have to be honest with you, when I heard that, my stomach was absolutely tied up in knots. There was anyone else? Was anyone else really nervous waiting for that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, I, I think we all know the reason is is because while this is the trial of one officer, there was actually much much more at stake. This was much more significant than just that. And so my stomach was in knots. And, and as I reflected on it, there were really two reasons for it. The, the first one was that I knew that our country was watching, but I knew especially that our black brothers and sisters were waiting to see whether justice would be done in this situation. Okay? Because like I said, we have a long history in this country of justice not being done in our court system. And it's typically been black people who have not received that justice. And so that was one reason. The other reason is, is probably one that you all feared as well, is that if he wasn't convicted, then our city would be in turmoil in lots of cities around the country, right? So there are really two reasons to be in knots. Well, shortly after the uh, verdict was going to come in, we got an email from Transform Minnesota, which is the evangelical net, uh, network that gets evangelical pastors um, and people together. And they said that they were going to be holding a, a pastor's prayer gathering at Shiloh Temple uh, over in North Minneapolis uh, just after the verdict was read. And so I talked to Abby and Holly, and we uh, decided that we would like to go over there and be a part of that prayer gathering. And so I invited them over to the parsonage to, to watch the, the verdict. 
And uh, like I said, I was really nervous as, as, uh, as I waited. It, you know, I had followed the trial fairly closely. I had watched, you know, some significant amounts of it um, and then just making sure that I stayed updated on it. But even after they announced that they were going to read the verdict, they had a lot of experts on there, a lot of lawyers, and all of them were saying, yeah, this seems to be, you know, like a slam dunk for the prosecution, especially because the jury was coming back so quickly, um, which means there wasn't a whole lot of division there. And, uh, and I know that there were maybe some questions about whether one charge fit the, the description and all of that kind of stuff, but, but people felt pretty confident about it. Okay? And, and that's what justice in the courts actually means, that people are judged fairly and equity according to the truth. Okay? And I think that's what happened in this case. And so I was relieved then when the verdict came down. I also have to admit that I felt a, a little bit of sadness as well. Um, and this is kind of the strange thing about justice, is even though I think it was the right verdict, George Floyd is still dead. Um, Derek Chauvin is going to be spending a long time in prison, and it's probably not going to go very well for him. He's probably going to have to spend a lot of time by himself for the next however many years. And the truth of the matter is, is that even with justice, there's, there's kind of a heaviness to it, you know, as a, as a result of our sinful and fallen world. Well, when we got to Shiloh, I walked into the sanctuary, and the first people that I saw were friends, uh, Reverend Coleman, was one, and then uh, Rick, um, who is one of the elders at Wayman AME that I've gotten to know over the years. And uh, I had noticed that over the last few months, uh, every time I saw Reverend Coleman, um, I, didn't, I didn't have a one-on-one with him really over the last couple of months, but I was on Zoom calls with him a number of times. And I would look at him and I could just see in his shoulders and I could see in his face A real heaviness. It's an incredible burden that he was carrying. Of course, he pastors a church, but he also pastors a community, and that's, that's what black pastors do. He also runs an organization called Hope United CDC that does mentoring and has these hard conversations about race. And he's also one of the people that gets called whenever there's a, uh, an event like the killing of Dante Wright or something like that to make a statement and to sort of represent the church community. And um, I could just see that weighing on his shoulders. But when I walked into the sanctuary at Shiloh, both Richard and Rick looked like this weight had been lifted off their heads. You know, I was relieved. I was. My, my stomach was, was better. Okay? But when I saw him, 
I was reminded of this passage of scripture from Isaiah 61. It's a, uh, it's a um, prophecy for the Messiah. It said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. And maybe you think I'm being a little bit dramatic here, but I don't think I am. There was a lightness in that sanctuary on Tuesday afternoon. Not just with Reverend Coleman, but with with others. I don't know what there's a hundred people there maybe. And uh, just this lightness, especially on the black uh, pastors. And it was light because a burden had been lifted off their shoulders. And the burden that weighed so heavily on their shoulders was whether the justice system would work this time when it hadn't so many times before. And that verdict gave them hope that justice really would be impartial. Hope. One of the amazing things about that time to me, and I think this is one of the calling cards of biblical justice, is that, yes, there was a light spirit there, a sense of relief, but there was not a drop of animosity directed at Derek Chauvin. It was amazing, amazing to see. There was no gloating. In fact, we had prayer time specifically for Derek Chauvin, for his family, we prayed for his salvation, we prayed for his safety in prison. And in that attitude, I could see or in, in that attitude and in the prayers, I could see the words or hear the words of Jesus who said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Okay? So when we say, Let's know who we are, know what God requires of us, act like ourselves, okay? as children of our Heavenly Father, we might not have been more like our Heavenly Father than in that moment. Now, justice needed to happen. It really did. But then it doesn't become an us against them. It becomes an all of us together. We have to avoid going to that too quickly. Justice, tzedakah, that's the work that we have to do. But we can get there. We really can. Now, I know this topic makes us really uncomfortable. It makes me really uncomfortable. And I have to stand up here and talk about it. But if we want to say that we believe in the whole scripture, then I think we need to let go of some of our defensiveness and in humility to make a real effort to try to see things that we have not yet seen. We're called to do justice and we're called to do it in the way that God calls us to do it. It's not always easy and we don't always get it right and we don't always say the right thing, okay? which is why we need to heed Micah's third call and that is to walk humbly with our God. Truth of the matter is, is that we don't have God's perspective. 
We don't see everything that God sees. We have to remember that we are mere mortals. In fact, Micah reminds them of that in this very verse, right? He's shown you, O mortal, right, what's good. And we have to rely on God's grace and power and not on our own righteousness or how good or how enlightened we are. Okay, walking humbly with God means that we continue to rely on him and not put ourselves in his place, not to pretend that we know everything or have all of the answers. Okay. But humility means to keep our eyes open and to listen to people who are calling for justice. Now, we've talked a lot about racial justice because that's, the, that's the, what we're presented with right now. Okay, but there are other issues as well, matters of justice. And I think humility means that we have to recognize where we have failed to do justice or even contributed to it and to start to align ourselves with God's righteousness and justice. So, what now? I didn't give a lot of details. Um, But in your notes, I've provided you, if you don't have notes, you can get them at the uh, outside there. If you're online, uh, I guess we can maybe post a link or try to get them on there. But I have some resources there for you to, to take a look at about justice. Most of them are about racial justice uh, because, like I said, that's the moment that we're in right now and I think it's important and, and uh, you guys are motivated, at least hopefully, to learn and to read and, and all of that. Um, I also included one called Rediscovering Our Evangelical Heritage. I don't know if you know this, but the foundations of the evangelical church actually are in justice. And not in justice, but are in justice. And, uh, and although probably some of that too. Uh, <clears throat> The history of the Wesleyan Church, the same thing, okay? We were founded as an abolitionist movement, all right? So it'd be good for us to get to know some of that history as as well, all right? Um, But then there are some other things, uh, some organizations, some websites that if you want to start to to get involved in things, and you know what? You guys, long before I was here, you guys were doing things with Arrive Ministries and many other things, um, and those are all good justice things. We're trying to re-engage again with... um, with Together for Good and, and some of these other organizations that we have been. Uh, Hope United CDC, trying to you know, see what it looks like for us to get back into a school and, and, and all of those things, all right? And, uh, and so, you know, re-engage. Re-engage by learning and re-engage by starting to, to get involved, okay? Don't disengage, okay? And don't allow me to disengage either, okay? Because it, this is, it's a, it's a reminder for us, Okay? And we can't let any discomfort that we feel push us away, cause us to retreat. But we have to lean into it because this is a biblical issue. Okay? God has shown us today what is good and what the Lord requires of us, right? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Lord, thanks for this word. Ah, it's so, so easy to forget about it. Man, it just really is. When we get into our lives and um, we think about the comforts that we have and the way we want life to be easy and we forget that not everybody has it as good as we have it. And God, I, I pray that this would not be some sort of paternalistic or savior kind of thing. 
God, but that in humility we would recognize that through Jesus Christ you invited us into your family. And because of that, that we would extend mercy and invitation to be a part of your family to the people around us. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us grace? Would you give us humility? Just give us a posture, God, of of learning and understanding and growing. God, give us wisdom and truth. Help us to be able to, to sort out truth from falsehood. But God, may our posture <clears throat> always be <clears throat> toward justice, mercy, and walking humbly with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.